Right, hello. Um, this is hopefully the first of a new series of podcast episodes. I am about to embark upon a new research project, and I found because uh, I've just finished a book, and the book that I've just finished, a lot of the ideas in it were developed through the podcast episodes. I find that doing this is invaluable in terms of um, organizing thoughts and generating ideas and so on. So, um, quite looking forward to starting a new project and having to think about new things. And so my intention is to try to create a series of new episodes um, throughout 2019. Uh, and also wanted to say thank you. Thank you to everyone who listened to the episodes before and whoever's listening to this now, however you got hold of it, I do really appreciate it. Um, if you have any comments or ideas or criticisms or whatever, please get in contact via the Facebook page. Um, yeah, uh, so today, right, first episode, I want to talk about a uh, about Peter Pan. Um, and also specifically the production Wendy and Peter Pan, which is going on at the Lyceum in Edinburgh, adapted by Ella Hickson and directed by Eleanor Road. It's the Lyceum's Christmas show, and um, it's... I haven't seen a Christmas show at the Lyceum for two years, because the last one I saw was Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which was adapted by Anthony Nielsen, and I like Anthony Nielsen a lot. I was really excited to see that show. And then I did an episode about it, and I had spent most of the episode not talking about the show at all, because I had made a promise that I would not do any negative episodes, or try not to do any negative episodes. Um, so this show, I am this episode, I'm, I'm quite delighted to say I will be talking about the show quite a bit, because I really liked it, I thought it was great, and I'm really glad that I went to see it. Uh, there will be a lot of spoilers. So if you are interested in going to see Wendy and Peter Pan at the Lyceum in Edinburgh, it's running for another couple of weeks, um, then please turn this episode off and go and see the show. And then if you still want to you know, listen to me wittering on about them, please come back afterwards. But I will be spoiling a lot of stuff. Uh, if you don't, either if you don't care about spoilers or if you're not planning on seeing the show, or if you've already seen the show, then by all means continue to listen. So without further ado, welcome to Stage Blather, a podcast exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and you're listening to episode 27, Children Out of Time. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar so, the production. So, the, the story of Peter Pan is uh, incredibly well known. There is um, a variety of films, um, theatrical adaptations that's been turned into plays and so on. I am prepared to venture that everyone listening has seen like a handful or read a handful of different interpretations of this story. Um, this one, the one that's on the Lyceum, has a framing device which I have not seen before and which I thought was quite canny. At the beginning of the play, we've got the Darling family household. Um, the play is arranged to look like a children's bedroom. That there's the children are playing soldiers. There are four Darling children, which is a, a deviation from the original, I believe, where you had Wendy, John, and Michael. This time round, we have Tom. Tom is uh, the, I it seems to be the, young, the younger of the brothers. And as and the, the Darling family household is uh, represented as a very loving, very vivacious household. The parents are clearly very infatuated with one another. They both play with their children. Um, Tom contracts an illness and dies. 
quite quickly. And the household sinks into grief. And then we start Barry's story. Then we start the story that everyone remembers, which is the story about the three children living in a house with the two parents who are quite cold and unfeeling and can't connect with their children. Uh, a, a household in which Wendy is kind of at the window every night looking for the boy that she believes is outside. Except in this version, the boy that she thinks is outside is her dead brother, Tom, not Pan. Then we go into the kind of, so then she's at the window and then Pan crashes through the window and he's lost his shadow, which is the bit that you know, everyone remembers. And there's this kind of light that's flickering around everywhere and it turns out that it's Tinkerbell. Um, uh, Tinkerbell is played, is, is played kind of uh, wonderfully in this one um, as uh, a Raj Scott in Doc Martens by uh, Sally Reed. And they've got this kind of, there's a very uh, cute narrative device where they go, why is she, she's a fairy, why is she so big? And he says something like, well, when she gets full of emotions, she gets big. And because she's a Raj Scott, she's always full of emotions, so she's always big. Um, and Wendy, so the three children then go to Neverland, as we would expect, and then Wendy gets shot down by Tootles at Tinkerbell's instruction because Tinkerbell is jealous of Wendy. All this kind of stuff, stuff that we know about. At this point, I mean, there is um, uh, Wendy's. Uh, sorry, yeah, no, Wendy um, is played by Isabel MacArthur. Is the kind of focal point of the play, and the title does prefigure this on Wendy and Peter Pan. She's the person who um, the audience is ostensibly most on side with, and. The, gender, the, the play seems to have an interest in gender politics. One of the first things that we see her doing is she comes on stage and uh, there's the three brothers are all playing at being soldiers. Michael is being um, very kind of tyrannical and up himself and Wendy really wants to play soldiers with the, the boys and so Michael says that she can be a damsel in distress and then later on he says she can be a damsel or she can sew buttons and there's this kind of sense of the way in which gender politics in the Victorian period and of course in the modern period, the contemporary period rather, um, constrict women. And so this is the kind of the thing that we are led to believe will be the focal point is the way in which Wendy becomes a site of conflict um, because she resists the things that she's expected to do. She doesn't want to be um, just a mother. She doesn't want to be just a uh, damsel. So she, she wants her own agency and so on. And various reviews of this production have pointed to the emphasis on gender politics as being somehow a weakness because... And I, I, for what it's worth, I think they might actually be right, because although the play sets up this idea of gender politics, and it does come back at various key points. Later on, for example, um, right quite near the end, Wendy manages to forge an alliance with Tiger Lily and Tinkerbell, and she has this whole speech about how the boys always get to have fun, and they don't sit around like sniping each other. Why are the girls always kind of turned against each other? Why don't we band together? And why don't we help them? Why don't, you know. Um, nevertheless, it doesn't seem like the play is as interested in gender politics as it is in other subjects. And it's not going to be a surprise to anybody who's listened to these episodes before if I say that the thing that I think the play is most interested in and uh, is interesting for is death. But it's also very interested in time. And it interrogates time in a way that is quite familiar in some respects to anybody that knows the story of Peter Pan, but in other respects I think is quite unusual. Because time is something that is very important in the story of Peter Pan, obviously. Peter Pan himself is a figure who exists out of time. His Neverland is a place that is insulated from time. It's a place of perpetual childhood. And childhood is this kind of... Um, there is a sense of the, of the infinite with childhood. Because you don't have any other frame of reference 
because you're not, or at least certainly when I was a child, I was not aware of my own mortality in the way that I am now because I was not aware of, you know, a limit to the amount of time that I would be on Earth necessarily. I mean, in the abstract, but certainly not something that, that would, um, that I could rationalize. There is a way that there's a sort of sense that childhood itself is an atemporal um, entity. Um, and the problem, I suppose, the reason, so you've got Neverland as a kind of metaphor for childhood, but the problem with Neverland is that childhood can never last forever. Although it feels like it does, it, a person always necessarily develops experience, and by developing experience they develop more and more frames of reference that will eventually dismantle their naive forms of innocence. This has proven to be a subject of sort of, you know, enormous fascination for people like William Blake, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who have looked at childhood and looked at the, de the development of innocence and the way in which innocence becomes corrupted. Um, in, in those two cases, both trying to think through ways in which children can grow into adults without becoming corrupted. Now, Barry's answer, J. M. Barry's answer to the problem of a place of perpetual childhood was to make Neverland a place of forgetting, in which you cannot really develop any kind of frame of reference or experience, because you are always um, losing the memories of what has just happened. So you're constantly playing, and that doesn't, you know, there's no problem with that. There's no kind of, you don't start to question, you don't start to challenge, you don't start to grow or develop or become bored or whatever because you don't have the memories of it. And this, the, the idea of a place of, of uh, perpetuity in which forgetting becomes necessary is something that is, you know, um, a literary device that goes all the way back to Homer. If you think about uh, the Odyssey and the land of the Lotus Eaters, which is an island of people who eat um, narcotic plants in order to live in a state of blissful forgetfulness. More recently, there was, um, I think it was the Peter Capaldi Doctor Who, there was a, a character player, Maisie Williams, who was granted the gift of eternal life. And there's a scene in which uh, the Doctor returns to her many hundreds of years later to discover that she has developed a kind of strategy for forgetting because she was going mad trying to keep all of the um, memories of this elongated life in her head. There is, you know, we have the way in which our memories function it doesn't work on an infinite time scale. We can only live for a certain amount of time. We can only keep our memories for a certain amount of time. In order to be able to live forever, you have to forget. This seems to be the kind of literary heritage that um, uh, that is being played with here. And this idea of blissful forgetfulness is very appealing to the three darling children in this production because they have lost their brother, and so they are kind of plagued with grief. And the idea of a place of, of uh, perpetual childhood is comforting. But the comfort is artificial. And that was something I quite liked about this, is that the, the, the production doesn't present Neverland as something that is utopian or idyllic. In fact, what it often seems to be is something that is rather awkward, forced, and in, verging on monstrous. And the idea of the monstrousness of perpetual childhood was manifested in a way uh, that it was through the character of Peter Pan in this production. And Pan was done in a way that I've not seen before. We're used to seeing Peter Pan as a kind of uh, conceited, selfish, vain, but charismatic figure. But what we have here is um, Ziggy Heath playing Pan as a kind of charmless nitwit. Like, he's uncomfortably one-dimensional, and his lack of empathy verges on psychopathic. There's multiple occasions in which... Uh, character dies or is about to be killed or is lost and he kind of snaps immediately into playing 
does not engage at all with what has just happened, cannot engage at all with what has just happened, and it makes him profoundly unlikable. And it's, it's possibly, like I said, it's based on qualities that already existed in Pam. But when you look at it through the lens of grief, the lack of empathy that he displays takes on a new kind of clarity. And a lot of, because a lot of the, like I said, the, the playing, the, the chaos that is demonstrated through Pan and through the Lost Boys often feels quite forced. And it relates, I think, to this, the, the um, Elizabeth Cooler Ross's notion of the stages of grief, the five stages of grief, one of which is denial. In fact, uh, Captain Hook, at one point, openly uh, quotes that and says something to the effect of, you know, I, somebody, uh, they, he thinks Peter Pan's just been killed, and he's talking to Wendy, and Wendy says, Pan's not dead, and he's like, look, love, I know that um, you, somebody you care about has just died, and so you're going to be uh, engaging with a little bit of denial, but let me tell you straight, Pan is dead. Um, and so this idea of Neverland and Peter Pan as some kind of denial makes the whole story of Peter Pan a kind of escapist fantasy about dealing with grief. And I'll come back to that at the end of the episode, this notion of escapism is somehow endemic to a way of trying to avoid grief. Um, and it means that a lot of the characters in, well, all of the characters really in the play seem to be kind of out of time, out of the time period in which they should be functioning. The three darling children are out of time because they have come to a place of perpetual forgetting in order to try to... Ostensibly, what she's trying to do, what Wendy's trying to do, is to find Tom. She, she arrives in Neverland saying, where is Tom? I want to find Tom. Most of the time she keeps forgetting about Tom. Uh, she gets tempted away from looking for Tom. And it, the, the, it's one of those things, it's a bit like the gender politics. The play kind of seems to almost forget quite a lot that she's there looking for Tom. The reviewers picked up on this as a weakness. I don't think it's a weakness at all, because I think that the confusion at the heart of this play and the kind of chaos which seems to overwhelm the narrative at points makes complete sense if we think about this as a play about grief. So I mentioned that the characters all seem to be out of time. Um, we don't really see much of the pirates. We see Smee, um, who is a kind of beautifully played, lovelorn um figure who is constantly like running around after Captain Hook, trying very hard to be noticed, trying to look after him, um, and of course is just wildly abused by Hook. Hook um, uh, is uh, played by Guri Sarossi, he's played as a kind of ageing rocker type figure with um, quite strong echoes, I thought, of Gary Newman, he's striding around in leather trousers and a red frock coat. Um, there's a point at which, I think at the beginning of Act 2, he's standing on a, a treasure chest and like gyrating his hips. And he represents another kind of out-of-timeness. Um, it's quite common for Captain Hook to be read as a fear of the adult world from both sides. He's kind of the person that Pan fears come uh, turning into, the accidental doubling of um, Mr. Darling and Captain Hook from the original production, which has remained a tradition and, and, and does happen here, is that kind of... Pan looking at this, either this very kind of staid, um, repressed Victorian man or this murderous pirate and going, I don't want to turn into that. But at the same time, the captain looking at Pan and this kind of perpetual childhood and being afraid of what that represents. And in fact, one of the strangest parts of this production um, sees Captain Hook happening upon Peter Pan as he sleeps and delivering this weirdly heartfelt and quite unexpected monologue about the very fact of his fear about how he's afraid of Pan's youth, about how he's 
envious of Peter Pan's time, and he wants Pan's time. He wants to be taken back to the point in which in his life where he felt that uh, he had eternity to live, and that he says something like, "Take me back to the time when errors were lessons, not failures." And it's quite, you know, it's sad. It's the, all of a sudden, he looks like a sad, aging man. Um, and then, of course, Pan wakes up, and the, they start fighting, and the whole thing kind of go, just goes back. And I wasn't sure, again, it's one of those things, I don't know whether that was a weakness in the production or not. I thought that it was quite fascinating, but I recognise that my um, my criteria of value are probably rather unusual. Um, a lot of the reviews, and so this play hasn't fared particularly well in the reviews, and I think that is enormously unfair, because to be honest, this is one of the most ambitious and fascinating family shows I've seen in a very long time. Um, and I think it really should be applauded for trying to do something and treating its audience with respect rather than force feeding them messages for the most part. Um, so yeah, so Captain Hook, um, Captain Hook dies with the words TikTok Peter, which is obviously a reference to the the crocodile, but there's also kind of a notion about the the development of time. And what I thought was quite curious about the the death of Captain Hook is that when he says TikTok Peter, he has both completely out of time because he's dying he's dead his character has no longer to live but at the same time he's completely within time so because he rejoins the character arc there's this kind of bit throughout the second act where he's gone off into this completely other storyline where he's trying to do things that don't actually happen in jm barry's story um but he's still inevitably pulling towards his own death and when he dies um we the audience are kind of restored to the narrative that we recognize we knew that he was going to die and that so this the, the idea of this is one of the, the kind of um, temporalities that I thought the play did dealt with really well, which is a, a, a kind of narrative temporality, the idea of the way in which time unfolds in a story, and also the idea of um, predestination, because and that so in drama this goes all the way back to the Greek tragedies where uh, most of the audience would have been in fact all the audience would have been familiar with what was going to happen before it happened and the kind of the pleasure was in watching how the particular dramatist interpreted the story which is what we get here we know the captain Hook's going to die we know he's not going to beat peter pan we know that pan is going to triumph we know that the lost boys are going to remain in neverland we know that wendy michael and john are going to return to england um although i quite like the fact that um wendy was uh the, the two boys were i am was was john english i can't remember I know Michael was being played as an English boy, but they kept referring to Wendy as a Scot, and she had a very kind of broad Scottish accent. Um, uh, but the only so you've got this idea of a, a narrative that's playing out, a pre-day narrative. The only person that seems to know this is Captain Hook. Um, he seems to be aware that his story and Peter Pan's story has been told countless times before, that they have fought countless times before, and that he has died countless times before. And it's kind of an exhausting idea. It's vaguely redolent of um, something like Dante's Inferno, where uh, the souls of the condemned are forced to tell and retell the nature of their transgressions as part of an eternity of punishment. And um, there's another, there's a really stunningly awful uh, episode of Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror where they play with this, where there's a, a character who's condemned, I think it's called White Bear. Um, I won't give too much away, but there's a notion of perpetual condemnation where somebody is forced to relive the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and that seems in some ways to kind of inform Hook's 
despair, his uh, his dislike of being an adult, and his fear and loathing of Peter Pan. The only person, interestingly enough, who seems to be able to escape this narrative is Smee, because Smee um, takes a, a bullet, or he takes a bullet, no, he takes a sword, rather, for, um, for Captain Hook. And rather than collapse and die like everybody else does, he starts to fly, and they say... It's, um, it must have been his happy thought to be able to sacrifice himself for the captain. And as he flies off up um, away from the stage, he says to the captain uh, that he was going to go to a cottage just for the two of them and that he'll light a fire and wait from there. It's kind of quite an affecting moment. So that's one kind of time that this production plays with, the, o the overlapping time of narratives. Um, this production necessarily builds on all previous productions and interpretations of Peter Pan. And I've, spoke, I've spoken about this before in, in other episodes, um, about uh, what Marvin Carlson calls the haunting of the stage, how subsequent productions are haunted by the ghosts of those that have gone before. And incidentally, the strangest haunting that I found in this production was the last line of the first act, where upon apparently dying, Pan says, to die will be a great adventure. And the version of Peter Pan with which I associate that line is Steven Spielberg's film Hook from the 90s. And I watched that when I was very young and it stayed with me throughout my life. And the person playing Peter Pan who spoke that line was Robin Williams, who has since committed suicide. And there's a terrible bathos to the line now, for me at least, um, to die will be a great adventure. Because that kind of... The act of his suicide stained, obviously, um, the work that he'd made before, and also the way that that work had operated within my own childhood. And it, it's kind of, it's almost horrifyingly, not apt in a way, but the idea that a person playing Peter Pan then commits suicide kind of immortalizes them in time in a way. They can't develop, they can't grow any further. And that notion of the boy that can't grow up takes on a fairly hideous significance. Um, so I, I want to start thinking about it. I want to try and unpack that a bit because it, like, as often happens in, in good theatre, this is one of the things that ideas started troubling me. And um, links between childhood, timelessness, and death that were quite prevalent in here that reminded me of a, a Derrida quote, um, which was in a book called The Postcard. And Derrida said, A child is what one should never be able to send oneself. It will never be, never should be a sign, a letter, or even a symbol. It's a, you know, typical Derrida quote, very dense, means about 20 different things, most of them contradictory. My former supervisor used this quote as an epigraph in an article that he wrote, and I'll put the details on the Facebook page. Um, and he suggested, Mark Robson, his name, suggested that Derrida was uh, talking about the the issues of instrumentalizing childhood, of turning the, a child into something that it isn't. And it's an ethical question. Of course it is. A child should be protected from being used in the way that we use letters and symbols. They should be protected from being overwritten with exterior meanings that remove their self-determination and deploy them into some narrative that is not their own. A child is what one should never be able to send oneself. A child cannot carry my message. They're not a person, in fact, that I can send out as a messenger. And... I was trying to think of examples of this. We see it sometimes in uh, children's beauty pageants where a child becomes the conduit for, we assume, parental ambition or societal ideas of attractiveness, you know? The child in a beauty pageant is not there performing themselves or um, seeking or creating or developing their own agency, but they're there being filled with the agency of other people in a way that I personally find often rather perverse. I know I'm not, you know, other opinions are available, but it, this seemed, I think that that's quite, a, it seemed like quite an obvious example of this. Childhood is generally understood to be a process. 
children are generally understood to be in flux. And although the adult world is constantly divided on how best to interact with that process, how to protect, assist, or guide that process, or indeed how long the process lasts or what it should contain, what does tend to remain constant is an appreciation of the temporalities of childhood, that they move from one thing to another, constant stages of development until eventually reaching adulthood. And the, there is something important about that process. I mean, you know, famously for the Victorians, that was a process that needed to be controlled. Uh, and in the case of, you know, children of the working classes, it was a, the idea of childhood was something that was extremely brief, if indeed it existed at all, before they were sent up chimneys and, you know, so on. Um, but there is, regardless of this, I think, a prevailing notion of childhood as a process, and a process that is somehow sacred. And so that temporality takes on a particular significance. But grief, as I've argued in previous episodes, grief destroys temporality. Grief is no respecter of temporalities. It puts a massive emphasis on memory and the past, where all of a sudden, all of the things that the grieving person can't remember about the person who's died have, are revealed as gone. They're destroyed because the dead person cannot remind us of them. Grief stretches and morphs the present into strange and unbearable fashions. It breaks apart the grieving person's sense of their own development and trajectory. It puts up barriers against the future. It is a, a chaotic reassembling of all points of reference. Grief is something that puts us entirely out of joint. And um, there's a review of Wendy and Peter in The Scotsman uh, where Hickson says that she considers the story of Peter Pan to be a manual for grief. And I have to say, I'd never thought of it like that. Um, but now that she said it, I, I kind of see what she means. And certainly in this interpretation, the idea of people uh, grieving and because they're grieving, vanishing into lands of make-believe in order to reject the reality that they're otherwise forced to endure is, is you know, again, it's a common enough literary device. There's an, if you've not seen Terry Gilliam's film Brazil, there's an amazing example of that. Go and see it. But there's something Neverland, something about Neverland that's tailor-made to appeal to the grieving person. As I mentioned earlier, you forget everything. There is no time anymore. The few moments in this play where Peter struggles, and he does struggle, um, even though he is one-dimensional and charmless and just, in many respects, kind of awful, um, there are bits where you can see him starting to feel pain, and that's where he's starting to remember. And he's remembering is because Wendy, John, and Michael are in Neverland, and they don't belong in Neverland. They bring their memories and their suffering with them and they start to unravel the world around them as a consequence. And at the close of the play, where the three children inevitably return to the world, you can see a kind of sigh of relief passing through Pan and the Lost Boys as they can then return to their endless playtime, which is, <coughs> which is the time in which they belong, which is a time that is out of time. Um, this has been a bit of a rambling episode. I, I must apologize for that, but hopefully it, some of it's made some kind of sense and has resonated on some level. Um, there is one thing I'd like to talk about finally, uh, and again, this is another spoiler, and I, I, I do apologise, but it, it, Peter is recast in this play as death, I think, or at least as some facet of death. We learn uh, right at the Place de Numont that Peter guides the souls of the dead, of dead children into the sky, where they watch over their families until when the whole family has a moment of pure happiness, they can then be released and can come to Neverland to be a lost boy and play forever. Until the, the family has a moment of pure happiness, the child is um, incarcerated up in the sky as a lone star. And Wendy looks up at the stars and says, that's awful, the children must be so lonely, particularly her brother must be so lonely. 
um, and also that they look like water because they're reflecting the tears of their parents. It's an odd conceit, and I, I don't know, I've, I've not come across this particular interpretation of Pan before, nor do I know whether it contains any mythological roots. I might dig into that. But what's appealing about it, certainly as far as this, this is a, a play for children, is that it suggests that, first of all, a dead person lives on only in memory. Because that's what Neverland is. Although it is a place of forgetting, it is also a place that exists only in memory. At least as far as the temporalities of the world are concerned. You can only really engage with Neverland if you remember it, not by being there. This is what Wendy, uh, John and Michael learn quite painfully. So... Because a dead person, because the people who live in Neverland are, we realise, dead, or they are rather immortal, and it's the same thing, they can only be happy if we're happy, because we are the people who give them life, we remember them. And what the play seemed to be arguing ultimately was that to maintain the agonies of grief absolutely is to rob the dead person of any joy in their existence. You see it in uh, Mr. and Mrs. Darling. He comes back onto stage uh, just right at the end and he says that he's, he's been out all night because he can't make her happy because Mrs. Darling has sunk into a despair from which apparently there is no, um, no bringing her back. And obviously the play doesn't end like that. It's, it's got a, a different ending. I, I thought the, the ending is, is much happier. Um, but the... The ultimate argument seems to be something to the effect that it is only when we've come to terms with death and with our grief that we can allow the dead person some form of happiness. And I quite like that. I thought that was a very well-intentioned and intelligent way of trying to talk about grief and the necessities of grief to a younger audience. Anyway, I'm going to stop at that. I, I think this will probably be the beginning of many longer conversations. I know that this you know, talking about death is hardly anything new for me, but the idea of children's theatre is something that I want to look into more because that's part of the book that I'm planning on writing so hopefully um, future episodes will continue to talk about children's theatre uh, and this was a bloody lovely way to start um, thank you for listening I will leave you with Polly Edwards' song and I hope all's well cheers <laughs>